Good afternoon and welcome on behalf of the Atlantic Council. It's, um, it's a great honor for me to introduce to you my friend Penny Mordaunt, the Minister of State for the Armed Forces of Her Majesty's Government of the United Kingdom. Um, you will all have, I presume, read her official duties, which include operations, operational policy, legal matters, force generation, and service personnel policy. And if that's not enough, other responsibilities include cyber and Northern Ireland and defense relations with Africa and Latin America. After graduating from university, Penny began a very successful career in business and communications, working in the private and public and charitable sectors. She was communications director for the Kensington and Chelsea Council. She supported British truckers during the French blockades while working for the Freight Transport Association and was, the, was a director at the Community Fund, which merged administratively to create the Big Lottery Fund. And in 2006, she became director of Diabetes UK, the largest patient organization in Europe. And if that wasn't enough, at the same time, she founded her own media company, which she ran successfully for many years before she successfully sold it off. In the world of politics and government, Penny has worked with several high-profile politicians. Under Prime Minister John Major, she was head of youth for the Conservative Party, and she had a two-year spell as head of broadcasting under party leader William Hague. She's even dipped her toe into the waters on this side of the Atlantic, having worked as head of foreign press for George W. Bush's presidential campaign in 2000 and again in 2004. In the 2010 general election, Penny won the seat of Portsmouth North with a 7,200 vote majority. And in Parliament under the coalition, government served on the European Scrutiny Committee, the Defense Select Committee, and as chairman of the all-party groups for life science and for aging and older people. And in, as an indication of her rising star, in autumn of 2013, she was appointed parliamentary private secretary to the Secretary of State for Defense, the Right Honorable Philip Hammond, now the Foreign Secretary. In 2014, Penny was only the second woman in the reign of Elizabeth II, the first being Lady Tweedsmuir, in 1957, the only woman, second woman, to propose the loyal address in reply to the Queen's speech from the throne. And in it, she made reference to Tweedsmuir's comments about wanting more female involvement in Parliament. And the speech was so good that the Spectator magazine named it the speech of the year for 2014, knocking out Gordon Brown. In the general election of 2015, she was re-elected to Parliament, increasing her majority to over 10,500, and she assumed her current post in May 2015. While doing all of this, she's involved in many charities active in her constituency in the Portsmouth area, including serving as a patron of the Victoria Cross Trust. And to me, most importantly, not only does she talk the talk, she walks the walk. She is a Royal Naval Reservist, acting as an active, acting sub-lieutenant. So it's my great privilege and honor to introduce my friend, the Honorable Penny Mordaunt, Minister of State for the Armed Forces. Thank you. Thank you very much, Frank. Well, good afternoon, and thank you very much for, for coming along. 
I've got a big long list, a to-do list uh, on this visit, but top of it is to say thank you. I have been for some time a cheerleader of our Atlantic Alliance. And having peeped behind the defense curtain, now as Minister for the Armed Forces, I understand how close, how integrated, and how interoperable our partnership is. And I'm confident that partnership will continue to strengthen as we face up to the same challenges and the same enemies and defend our common national interests, creating security in which freedom and as a consequence, our citizens can thrive. I'm a cheerleader for the US because of your enthusiasm, your energy, your values, but most of all, because you are an example of enduring freedom and you are prepared to defend that freedom. I want to start by paying tribute to our armed forces. They have the best characteristics of our society, duty, professionalism, self-service and sacrifice. They put the needs of other people before themselves. And we've seen recent examples of that in the actions of US servicemen, Spencer Stone, his friends, and Brit Chris Norman in their actions on that French train a couple of weeks ago. And in the actions of Lance Corporal Leakey, um, a Victoria Cross uh, awardee and veteran of the Afghan campaign, who risked uh, a lot in order to rescue his injured comrades, including a US Marine. But it is not just that heroism that makes our armed forces so formidable. It is their considerable skill. Major David Cooper of the Royal Army Medical Corps uh, was a, he's a reservist and he is a veteran of the Afghan campaign. And in his day job, he is a paramedic in our National Health Service. And a few months ago, he, uh, responding as part of an air ambulance crew, attended a roller coaster uh, crash uh, in southern England. Uh, on arrival, he noticed a young woman still trapped in one of the roller coaster cars uh, way above his head, uh, bleeding to death. Without a second thought, he scaled the roller coaster and attended her, uh, applying techniques that he had learnt and developed on the battlefield. He saved her life. Our armed forces enrich our society, whether they are reservists or regulars. They give so much to the communities that they serve. And in the UK, I want to ensure that the connection between the public and our armed forces is strong and deep. And in recent times, that bond has been weakened. The public have lost faith in our ability to act. They question the merits of Iraq and Afghanistan. And they want us never to run those kinds of campaigns again. The experiences for the general public of our armed forces are too often through the prism of pity and charity. Our soldiers, sailors, airmen and women are seen as victims, traumatized by combat, not as the dedicated professionals that they are. They want us not to deploy them or put them in harm's way. But also, the public are troubled by what they see on their television screens. The appalling atrocities committed by ISIL, and they hate the feeling of impotence they feel at not being able to stop an aid worker or a journalist being brutally murdered. So the challenge for today's politicians and our leaders is to square those competing emotions.
to show that we have learned from Iraq and Afghanistan, to show that we know we cannot fight other people's wars for them, but it is in our national interests to help them do so themselves. And we must clearly articulate that change, what our armed forces are for, and to deepen the public's understanding of their mission and capability. Then we can reset the relationship between our armed forces and the public. And we in the UK have much to learn from the US in this respect. You really do understand how a military career can appeal to everyone in your society. And the profile of military figures in the US reflects the esteem your public places on those who choose such a career. We in the UK have made some progress in this respect. During the last parliament, we enshrined in law an armed forces covenant, which really throws down the gauntlet to our communities, our institutions, and our businesses to support the military. But more is needed to foster the focus and the kind of support which is so genuine and spontaneous in the US. We must ensure every part of our society and every community in the UK feels ownership of our armed forces and pride in what they do. Public support for defence is vital, not just in democratic support for spending and in military action, but also because our armed forces must represent and reflect the society they serve. Equality is an operational imperative for defence. It's not just best use of best talent and ensuring that all who serve can thrive. It is much more than that. One of the first trips I took as Minister for the Armed Forces was to go back to our officer training academy in Kabul in Afghanistan. I'd been there a couple of years before um, where I had, having graduated from Dartmouth just a couple of months before, seen um, uh, new uh, women recruits who had had to have uh, sought permission from every male member of their family in order to sign up and serve, training behind a brick wall. And at the time, I was very keen to point out to the Afghan general in charge that it was probably a bad idea uh, that the first time women and men who were going to fight alongside each other met was on the battlefield on an operation. And I was very proud to go back a few months ago to see the first, first 12 women Kandak officers pass out of that academy, one of them winning the Sword of Honor that year. And when I asked that particular uh, cadet uh, what her motivation was for being such a trailblazer and wanting to uh, serve uh, in the armed forces, she said that she wanted to shape and defend her country. I know how she felt. I want to shape and defend my country and I want others to be able to do the same. So I think we need, in this day and age, a very good reason why, uh, if we're going to remain uh, keeping uh, close combat roles and other roles in our armed forces uh, cut off to women, we need a very good evidence-based reason why we're going to continue to do that. And I'm very glad that this issue is being looked at, both in the US and in the UK. And I want to salute Captain Grist and First Lieutenant Haver on completing their Army Ranger course. I know that they are an inspiration to women who serve in our armed forces, and they are certainly an inspiration to me. They are an example of what makes our armed forces so great. It's not our gadgets and gizmos, 
it's our people. And future defence reviews must place people at their heart. We must invest in them. At a time when manpower costs are rising and we are trying to do more with our budget, it is a challenge to recruit and retain the best. And in the UK, we are bringing forward a new employment model. It's the widest review of terms and conditions in our armed forces since the Second World War. And it makes our offer fit for purpose in the here and now. And it's been great over the last few days, my meetings in the Pentagon and on the Hill, to uh, talk about this and your work in uh, Force for the Future as you grapple with the same uh, issues as we are. But this investment and focus is not just about recruitment and retention. It also guarantees our interoperability, which resides in more than technical connectivity of hardware and software, but in the heads and hearts of our men and women in uniform. And it creates that critical factor, trust in one another. That, after all, is what makes our alliance so special. Most of the time, we are working alongside each other, fighting shoulder to shoulder, whether it is deterring Russian aggression or as part of the global coalition against ISIL or in keeping our vital trade routes open. We value that and we will continue to play our part. Meeting our NATO commitment of 2% gives us a budget that is growing in real terms every year for the next five years. And critically, what we save in defence through efficiency drives, we get to reinvest in defence. We will invest in hardware and software, in the deterrent, in our capability, but above all else, we must also invest in our people. They are the guarantor of the excellence of our armed forces and the freedoms they protect. And in our SDSR and your reviews, we must ensure that we are enabling them to achieve their full potential. Only then, when our enemies do their worst, will we continue to be our best. And as we look at our national security interests and fast-changing threats that we face, there is one constant. The national security of the United Kingdom is greatly enhanced by our relationship with you. And the security of the United States is enhanced by your relationship with us in NATO and with our allies around the world. And we must continue to stand together to ensure the security, prosperity, and freedom of all our people. Thank you. Thank you. This is, I will take your card. <laughs> Thank so you very much. Not at all. Um, Thanks very much, everybody. Uh, my name is Vago Maradian. I'm the editor of uh, Defense News and uh, a member of the Atlantic Council. And I'm honored to be here. And I'm honored to welcome you and to uh, you. have this conversation with you. Um, I'd, I'd like to start by asking you about, I think, sort of one of the biggest things you guys are working on. You mentioned the SDSR, the Strategic Defense and Security Review. And I know that there's been an oath of uh, silence that's been taken by everybody who's uh, associated uh, with that. And as much as I'd like you to divulge all of the details of that review now, I'm suspecting that you may be somewhat reluctant to do that. But perhaps if I could ask you to sort of, what are some of the big issues that you're struggling with? And is this going to be another one of those reviews that, like the last review, is going to involve very, very large and very significant trade-offs for British defense? 
No, I, I have happy news that um, this SDSR is not going to be like the, the 2010 review. Um, when we took office then, we were uh, facing a pretty dire situation. We had um, an overcommitted uh, defence budget, which was um, twice the size of the uh, of the defence budget, and a the, mess. The so-called black hole. The black that hole, existed. yes. Um, so, um, uh, Rusi, I think, calculated it as about seventy-one billion. Uh, the gap. Um, so, uh, and and in addition to the the problems with the budget, we had this. Um, tangle of programs and initiatives which really didn't make uh, any sense. So it, that was a pretty brutal time um, and understandably the focus on it was on kit and, and equipment um, and we had some very painful decisions to make. I think one of the criticisms of that period as well was that it wasn't particularly strategic for a strategic defence review. Certainly when I was on the Defence Committee, that's one of the, the charges we, we levied. We are in a different position now. So in the last five years, through um, really tough reforms that we've brought into defence, we are now no longer that, um, that basket case. We are the top performing Whitehall department. Um, we have uh, some really good uh, initiatives that we've brought in. Um, we have uh, uh, proper linkage between uh, the military and the department structure and um, its political leaders. Um, and what that means is that we can actually now be genuinely strategic. The other key thing about our defence reviews is that they're not just about defence, they're across government. So uh, the Home Office, the Foreign Office, Department of International Development, Department of Energy, they are just as much part of it as, as we are. And it is a very logical process. It starts by looking at our, our planning assumptions, which happily, um, compared to the last review, actually reflect what we do, right. um, and we will then look at threats, and then only then will we start to address um, what we need to do to, to combat that. Uh, foundationally, though, as you look at, you know, UK forces are engaged in the ISIS campaign. Um, you know, they're, they're UK forces around the world are shaping, they're playing a key role in the whole uh, deterrent for Russia in terms of the deployments that British forces are making off over, over to the east. As, as you somebody who's engaged both in operations but also shaping sort of the thinking of this, what are sort of the foundational capabilities that UK forces need? What are the sort of sets of challenges that you're building this force to be able to address for the future? In terms of the review, we're not there yet. We're not looking at that aspect of it. Um, what we're looking at is um, what is in our, our national interest. So genuinely, I can't, I can't uh, tell you what the answer uh, to that is. Um, we are clearly um, involved in less high profile, but many more campaigns. So currently, uh, in, in terms of our major operations, we're involved in 21 uh, around the world. Um, and there is a definite shift from uh, the kinds of things that we've been doing in Afghanistan to uh, more capacity building, more training, uh, pre preventing situations arising and, uh, and deterring things. So um, that is now uh, the norm of our, of our operations. Um, uh, clearly we are very focused and working with the, with the US and we're uh, I think the second largest contributor to um, Operation Shader. Um, and we know that those, uh, those kind of activities, um, we need to be in it for the, for the long haul that we have learned from previous campaigns. Um, it is frustrating at times, uh, but we have to move uh, incrementally. We have to build the force um, to uh, ensure that there isn't uh, just a vacuum there when, when we go.
I, I want to get to actually the, the force and the manpower part of the equation which you talked about and you met with Secretary Brad Carson uh, and talked a little bit about our force, the force, force of the Future initiative as well. Uh, but there is a very big debate going on in Washington right now about the ISIS campaign and whether large numbers of American ground troops should be returning to Iraq and as well going into, going into Syria. Um, that, that has also been a debate over in, over in the UK. What's the state of the debate in the UK and is that on the table to deploy large numbers of British force forces potentially to either one of those two countries? Uh, no, I mean, we've been very clear. We do not think that is the, the right thing to do. Um, we have to be part of a, a coalition in addressing this. And the only way we are going to solve this problem for, for the long term um, is to build the capacity of uh, the local force. As I said, that is sometimes very frustrating. Um, we, we want to charge and you then want we want them to, sort to want that it out. as much as you do. Well, in it's a, in a sense. you know, I mean, what will what will happen otherwise is that we will we will defeat uh, this particular opponent and something else will will emerge. So, um, it it will take time. Uh, it will uh, you know it will take uh, probably many years, um, but that is what we need to do. And I think we need to learn from previous campaigns that we've been involved in. And, uh, and apply that to, to the situation now. From a, from a manpower perspective, um, there, was, there was a cry of relief, I think, within the Ministry of Defense when the five-year budget plan came out. Uh, it was uh, more generous than many people had expected. Mm -hmm. uh, but, on, uh, but it is very um, hardware-intensive heavy plan. The second carrier is in it, the nuclear deterrent is in it, Joint Strike Fighter features prominently in that. Um, even though the final number hasn't yet been decided, it's, it's a significant piece of it, as well as other modernization efforts. As the UK continues to be at the highest end of capability along with the United States, but the trade-off in that has been to shrink the force, less manpower investment. You've been aided a little bit by keeping manpower costs flat. Uh, and also the economy cooperated there for a while, but now the British economy is starting mm -hmm. to take off, so there's a recruitment challenge. More fundamentally, there's a concern here in Washington that the British armed forces are all sort of undermanned in almost every billet, that it's traded away people in order to get that high-end capability. And your service, the senior service, has suffered from that particularly mm -hmm. harshly. I mean, there's even a sense of the modern-day press gang on the waterfront, whether it's in Portsmouth or Plymouth, to fill out ships they're getting ready to deploy because your deployment cycles are, are, are so uh, intense um, at this point. And the Navy may be between 1,500 and 5,000 sailors short as it tries to bring and operate both of the carriers. Talk to us a little bit about what the strategy is on manpower. Mm -hmm. And are the British Armed Forces going to fundamentally have to grow? And you're a canary in the coal mine. What does that tell the United States as the United States looks to trade away manpower in order to mm -hmm. underwrite capability? Mm -hmm. Well, in addition to that big, long, expensive list of uh, a kit that is certainly in our manifesto commitments, we have made commitments on manning as well, on the size of the, uh, the army, of the um, full train strength um, deployable part of, uh, of our army. Um, as I've said in my speech, this is a, a huge focus for the SDSR. The, the main challenges lie in this space. And it's, it's not just numbers. In a, in a way, the numbers are, the, uh, are not the problem. Um, the, the Navy, for example, is doing, uh, it's, it's way ahead of its recruitment targets. It's doing extremely well. And as we shift to more and greater use of reserve forces, that is now, after a, a shaky start, um, is, is doing really well. Um, the, uh, the, the thornier problem 
is around certain skill sets and trades uh, that we need. Uh, uh, like in, marine engineers for the uh, Navy, for yeah, example. Yeah, absolutely, and those working in, uh, in the nuclear field as well. Um, and that's not just a defense problem, it's a, it's a national problem. So there are, there's a cross-government approach to that, to really encourage people um, to go into those trades, um, to incentivize them to uh, spend uh, some of their career in uh, the armed forces, not necessarily all of it. And um, with the new employment model, um, which is uh, removing some of the reasons why people don't find um, service life uh, attractive, um, we are also introducing um, more flexibility in, in someone's career pathway. So they don't necessarily have to be in the armed forces all the mm -hmm. time. They're, they're, they can move in and out of the, of the private sector. Um, so we're, we're tackling this in a, in a number of ways. But this is, um, you know, for, for me, um, this is one of the key tasks that the Secretary of State has given me. And for each of those, um, those pinch points, we have a very clear plan. Um, which is being addressed by more than just my department. Do you, what do you see, you know, there are those Americans who look at the British system and actually have seen significantly greater flexibility perhaps than we've seen from our own system, especially in how you can employ manpower, which you guys do with direct commissions, for example, for mm -hmm. very talented people that you need to plug a hole in. Um, what are some of the things that you think the United States can benefit from as it drafts its force of the future by looking at the Britain, and what are some of the elements that perhaps we're working and we're doing that you think could be important to sort of revamp your military manpower mm -hmm. management model? Well, I sat down yesterday with, with each of the, um, the services here, and, and actually we're very, very close in terms of the, the ideas and the initiatives that we are, um, that we are rolling out. Um, the, the breaks on that for each of us are, are different. Um, uh, we are, at the start of our, our parliamentary session, we have five years uh, in order to uh, you know, to run at this, um, and we want to make uh, we want to make very quick progress. But it is really about. Um, uh, I mean, just some of the some of the common themes are um, retaining women uh, in our armed forces, ensuring that they can have a full career, um, allowing more flexible and part time working. Um, uh, so it's not just reserves and regulars, but mm -hmm. you have a, a, a part time. Uh, workforce as well. Um, and it's providing uh, incentives and looking at uh, someone's aspirations and their, their whole family. So uh, one of the things we're particularly focused on is spousal employment, right. um, uh, which, you know, it doesn't matter how good the offer is to the, to the serviceman or woman, um, if their other half can't get employment where they're, where they're going, um, it's not the yeah. 1950s anymore. No, I'm no, glad no, that it's dawning no. on people. We have to move on. We have to move on. So there are some great, um, uh, great common themes there. Um, I'm really keen that um, we stay in regular touch, um, that we share information and ideas, and um, uh, you know I think we, I think we, there are some tremendous opportunities um, that lie ahead if we get this right. You talked about expanding opportunities for women. You are the first female armed forces minister. Um, do you know, in the United States, some of these barriers are breaking down. You mentioned in your speech the first two um, female rangers have graduated in their class. The pipeline will remain open to it. The chief of naval operations as well as special warfare chiefs have said, look, we're going through an objective process right now. We don't see any reason why women would not be able mm -hmm. to do SEAL training, which is, which is a major step that made people very happy to hear that. What about in the UK? I mean, a lot of these fields, remain, your, your dad was a paratrooper, uh, so it was an elite troop. 
um, you know, what is the game plan that you're bringing to this to open some of these uh, mm -hmm. communities um, to women? Well, there are there are very few roles that are actually closed off to, to women still. Um, we have women submariners, um, and uh, we've we've made good progress in in that respect in recent years. Um, but we are looking, as you are, at infantry and and armor. And uh, one of the things that we're p particularly looking at, we have looked at: can can women uh, make the grade? Can women um, get through training? Um, uh, why we should be doing this. Um, one of the, the issues that has come out of that initial research that we are now uh, following up on is it's not just can women get into these trades, it's can a woman enjoy uh, at least the average career in these, um, in these particular areas um, without being broken. Um, and uh, we're, we're doing research into that. Um, and looking what we would need to do in order for them to do that. And to, um, and to retain enough to be able to make command at some point, right? So the yes, cadre exactly. itself has to be big enough. Exactly, um, because otherwise it's not going to be a, a, an attractive career, I think, to the, to the sorts of people that would, would wish to do this. I think there are great opportunities in that um, for the fellas as well as, as, well as the women. Um, you know, we, we ask a, a huge amount from these people. We, we, they, they put themselves uh, through, uh, through the mill um, and uh, sustain injuries. And uh, I think we can, both of us, uh, the UK and the US, can do a lot more in ensuring that people are, um, they have better fitness advice, um, that we're trying to mitigate uh, those injuries as much as possible. So I think a byproduct of this whole process is that we will have um, better um, advice for people, whether they're preparing to go uh, and, uh, and try and qualify for, for these trades, um, or whether it's looking after them as they, as they go through it. Um, I think we, we see uh, great merits in, in opening up these, tr these trades to women, um, but whatever we do, it has to be, has to be evidence-based. So we're going, we're going through that work at the moment. And one last thing before I open it up to the public, for, uh, to the audience for questions. Um, do you, from a, you, you mentioned, for, for example, that there's, um, there's a debate in the United States about the gap between those who serve and don't, between the 1% and the 99%, uh, and that there is a civil military gap that's emerged. And part of it, I think, especially for wounded veterans, for example, is an overwhelming sense of charity. I didn't have to go do this. They did. But this is also sort of a long-term challenge for care for veterans. and. Yeah. I, you know, how do you put this in the in the broader context? I mean, the United Kingdom, given its rich military heritage, and you know the the, the military being in many many facets of life and, and 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 permeating into it, you would think that that bond would in some cases be stronger. But what are some of the fundamental things that have to happen to reduce that gap between those who serve and don't? Because percentage-wise, it's almost identical for you as it is in the United States in some respects numerically. How do, you, how do you do this? Is it more ways to serve, to attract people to try? I mean, what are some of the things that you think are the right model to solve that issue? Mm. Well, I think, as I, as I mentioned in my speech, the, uh, you know, the starting point is to really um, create that understanding about what are, in, in the, the, the very rapidly changing world that we uh, operate in, what are our armed forces there to do? Um, and to get communities to feel ownership of the, the of their armed forces. Um, there are a number of initiatives that, that, uh, that we're doing uh, to address that, but fundamentally, political leaders have to articulate 
what they're for, what we're what we're what we're doing. Um, I think that uh, as we um, leave Afghanistan and uh, as we uh, change to um, less high-profile operations, um, hopefully with less casualties, um, that uh, we we need to keep the public focus on our armed forces and it, and explain what they're doing. Um, when we had um, the, the high rate of, of casualties that were coming back from Afghanistan, there was a tremendous outpouring of support from the public, huge amounts of money donated um, to uh, Care for Veterans and uh, organizations like Help for Heroes. Um, and one of the concerns that um, certainly we had on the Defense Committee at the time was how sustainable were some of these things if uh, when the, the spotlight is then off that kind of activity. 10, 15 years from yeah. now. Uh, and what's the, what's the legacy of, of that? Um, so I think we did, a, we did a good job of really addressing those situations. And when um, you know, facilities were being built, have, you know, really questioning you know, what's the long-term plan for that to be um, uh, sustained. So um, I think we were, we were onto that uh, uh, very quickly. Um, but the Armed Forces Covenant, I think, is probably the most powerful vehicle that we have. That is, it's very new, um, uh, but it is having an effect. It is changing behavior. Um, so uh, I remember actually it was the first uh, engagement I had as a, um, when I was starting to run for office. I went to see SAFA, one of our mm -hmm. veterans organizations. And a, a continual theme from veterans was that when they went to the local authority to ask for some assistance with buying some new, a new fridge or a, a cooker, that they were, as soon as it was discovered they were a veteran, they were sent to SAFA or the, or the British right. Legion. Um, it's no longer acceptable for local authorities to do that. If you have served, you cannot be disadvantaged in any way. Right. Um, so um, it's changing behavior in our local authorities and in our institutions, in business, and um, as well as that sort of uh, stick, um, there's a few carrots in there right. as well. So I think through that, uh, and that's, that's being developed and it's being progressed, um, and we're learning very much from, from what uh, you're doing over here, um, I think we will, we will create that link, we will create that narrative, and we will develop it so that it's about our armed forces uh, today. I think just finally, there's some great initiatives from veterans themselves. Um, there's a new initiative called I Am A Veteran, which mm -hmm. is really dispelling um, some of the myths around uh, our veteran community, that they are fragile or they're all suffering from mental illness or they're all on the streets homeless. There are clearly individuals who have problems and we need to be there to, to take care of that. But that is not representative of, of veterans. No, no more nor less than the broader community yeah. at large. Questions from the audience? Harlan. Who continues to heal at an alarming pace? So. <laughs> alarming. Uh, I'm Harlan Ullman, a senior advisor here. I'm also a former Royal Naval person, served in the Leander, which is a sister ship to the one I'm told your name for. Uh, Minister, my question has to do with uh, some of the bets on which your future defense is really based. Uh, obviously, you've got F-35 carrier replacement and Trident replacement. But on the side of the Army, you've got a big bet about the reserves, whether they can fill a lot of these holes. And then you've got two really brilliantly innovative ideas in terms of 77 Brigade and particularly one ISR Brigade. I wonder if you could comment about how the reserve is progressing and filling these holes and how you see the progress and what you hope to get out of uh, first ISR Brigade and 77 Brigade. 
Um, things are, I mean, this is, um, in comparison to the numbers that we have fielded before in reserves, this is, this is fairly conservative stuff. Um, and it's always, I think, the small things that, uh, that mess things up. We had, um, when we initially started to recruit and, and the, you know, have the uplift into our reserve forces, um, there were glitches, uh, you know, the admin didn't work, uh, all of that. That has all been ironed out now. And um, we are getting people not just through the door, but, but through training quicker. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the, uh, the, the Navy and the, the RAF are, uh, are doing very well and ahead of the curve. Um, the Army clearly has much bigger challenges, but it is doing well and it is, um, it is ahead of uh, its, its targets at the moment. Um, but we need to constantly be, uh, you know, looking at doing things differently, and we are. Uh, we've brought in some very um, innovative uh, initiatives to uh, speed the whole process up. So, rather than someone having to apply for their board and then apply for their medical, and this will take a long time, they just go away for the the weekend or a week, and they they get all the the admin done. Um, so, just very simple things that just actually smooth uh, smooth the path through. Um, one of the the, the experiences that I've had is that I have actually been through all of my officer training as a member of parliament at the time when this uplift was happening. So I could, I've actually been through and witnessed the change in the, in the quality of what's being done. And um, it, is, uh, it is very dramatic. And also the, the cultural change that's happening. So I was on this second only course at Dartmouth that was fully integrated between regular yeah reserve and um, uh, Royal Fleet Auxiliary as well. And that's incredibly helpful because uh, you get people transitioning between, uh, between the three. Um, so huge amount been done, I should say also by a small group of people who have worked extremely hard to, uh, to get all that to happen. Um, we are facing uh, you know, massive challenges in other areas of, uh, of defense as well. Um, and uh, we are, we are going to have to um, do more with what we've got. The reserves are um, absolutely fundamental and, and key to enabling that to happen. Um, and that's not just uh, you know, a way of, of keeping the numbers up, it's also how each individual service is going to use them. Um, and uh, in terms of uh, developing that as well to, as I mentioned before, part-time working as well, um, I think that will help us dramatically fill some of these, uh, some of these skills gaps. Um, and I think uh, it is a very exciting time to be going into, into those services right now. In terms of your concerns about... all the military. Yeah, but in terms of uh, use of reserves? No, 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 in terms of what's going to be built to be able to fill out the task that CGS is supposed to be. Yeah, I mean, my, a great deal of my role is spent looking at grids uh, with uh, red uh, blobs on them to say where, where our pinch points are. And in fact, all of that, that management information wasn't there five years ago. So we know 
I, you know, I can tell you where you know headaches are not just today, but actually years years from now. So um, uh, we have we have challenges, but we know where the problems are, and we have a strategy to address them. So I'm very confident about our ability to to do these things. Young lady right here. Thank you. Esther Brimmer, member of the Atlanta Council Board, uh, also at George Washington University, and previously at the State Department. I'd actually like to go back to the strategy and the thinking underpinning the current review, and particularly ask you about one of the great principles obviously associated with the United Kingdom and with the United States, freedom of, freedom of navigation and freedom of the seas. We see a return to competition, whether we're talking about the Arctic or the South China Sea. How are you thinking particularly about maintaining this principle and what it means for deployment, and how will that underpin your approach to the review? Thank you, Madam Minister. Um, well, I think w when I got into office, I had to, uh, um, I was wearing a, a purple dress, I think, when I addressed um, uh, the MOD for the first time. Um, but uh, it is no secret that um, this is a subject close to my heart as um, uh, uh, an R&R &R officer. Um, I think that uh, one of the challenges that we have, I think, um, uh, not so much with those that are very close to the review, but with the wider stakeholders and in particular our parliamentarians is to keep them focused on these more traditional um, uh, bread and butter issues of, of defense. Um, we are a maritime nation. Um, uh, you know, if those pinch points uh, are, are closed, um, w in a few days we will be in, in deep trouble. 90% um, of uh, everything that we, you know, use as fuel, as um, as goods uh, is brought to the UK uh, by sea. So this is an absolute uh, priority for us. Um, part of this, um, and, and to really strengthen the ability of, of the Royal Navy, which is um, absolutely fundamental, is uh, not only that we, um, you know, we have the right platforms and uh, that they are, um, it's not just numbers, but the kind of technology that we're, we're really investing in, which keeps us relevant to you. Um, it is also that we have, um, we're able to drive down the costs of producing those platforms. Um, for us, one of the key questions as we go into the SDSR is about um, that sovereign capability. Um, we have announced our, our shipbuild strategy, for example, and we really want to ensure we have realistic drumbeats for our, for our shipyards. Um, I've spent a lot of my parliamentary career educating my colleagues about uh, the mission of the Navy and what we need to enable it to have the, the reach that we, that we need. I think that you're likely to see there has been a, a move um, towards much more closer working with, uh, with other maritime organizations. Um, it is a big sea and we, uh, we need, uh, you know, if other eyes are on, uh, you know, ensuring that uh, it, is, uh, it is policed and, it is, um, and those trade routes are open, then we want to, uh, we want to encourage that. Um, and I think we have seen a, um, a shift in where those uh, concerns are. In the last, um, for us certainly, in the last uh, five years, there is, there is less concern about piracy uh, than there has been um, previously because of the, the strategies that we've been working on um, in certain parts of the world. Um, but, you know, it is, a, it is a challenge for our Navy uh, in terms of uh, 
what it has to do with, with what it's got at the moment. Um, the, the big step change for us is when our carriers are, are back in. Uh, they're going to be based in my constituency, and uh, they will. The first ships will uh, first ship will come in in about a year's time, but that will be a um, a massive boost. But uh, there's one follow-up I want to make on that. Um, you know, Harlan mentioned Leander. I'm a big fan of Leander's. Also, Royal Navy used to have I think like 26 Leanders, and then tons of other frigates. I mean, the surface force was mm -hmm. large enough to actually have a global presence capability. Um, instead, the UK has steadily traded away numbers to move to the highest end, yeah. and now it looks like the frigate force could be as small as 12, for example. I know that that's under, under review, so I should look at your eyes for any signs 13, about whether actually. 13, <laughs> yeah. The lucky 13, which, which I think Sir George is uh, very happy about. But then there's counting OPVs against the numbers and, and things like that. I mean, it, at some point, is there a recognition that A, you need a more sort of tiered force, a little bit like more how the French have, which have open ocean ships that are very good for presence and counter piracy and a whole bunch of things, but aren't at the highest end of capability, mm -hmm. or simply have to invest more at some point as a maritime mm -hmm. nation, as opposed to shrinking to sort of six large um, you know, destroyers uh, of the daring class, and then 13 of these ships and a couple of OPVs. And right now, you realize, even with the Type 23 force that are very capable and extremely high availability, those ships are running incessantly mm -hmm. you know, at this point. Yeah. Um, I think that um, there, are, there are clearly two schools of thought. Um, you know, do you, uh, do you try and uh, go for reach and have more APVs and, um, you know, ha having more of a, a presence? Or do you invest in what are probably the most expensive <laughs> warships in the world? We have done uh, the latter because um, the capability that a Type 45 and uh, that the Type 26 will bring. Um, in part, it makes us relevant to you. Um, these are uh, the most sophisticated warships in the world. You can buy a frigate for um, half the price um, that uh, our Type 26s are, are going to cost us. Um, but it is that capability uh, that makes our Navy great. Um, and we have made a conscious decision to, uh, to invest in that. Where we can build more hulls and we can uh, obviously man them, we do so. So actually in the last SDSR, um, we uh, have managed since then to squeeze three more warships uh, out of the defense budget. Um, so we're building three ocean patrol vessels, um, which are, again are more capable ships. Um, they will replace uh, uh, um, some hulls uh, eventually, but they are just more capable platforms. So for us, it, the capability is absolutely key, um, and it is uh, if there is a choice, we will we will go for that. Yes, ma'am. Elaine Sereo, I'm the associate rector of WIUU in Kiev, Ukraine. Thank you very much for being here today. Uh, you spoke to the public opinion in the UK uh, regarding the military and its involvement around the world, particularly you cited uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. And then uh, uh, here in the US, of course, public opinion is we hear so much of the US leading in efforts around the world. And we know that our UK is a strong partner. Where uh, could you particularly define the UK as leading with the US partnering 
in efforts that the, UK, that the UK has either taken initiative for or has intent to take initiative for. Thank you very much. Well, I think, I mean, we, we clearly have common objectives and I think you would be, you would be hard pushed to find something that we, uh, that we um, you know, that we didn't both have a stake in or were increasing our activity in. I think one of the things that the UK has really pushed and led on, um, and particularly under William Hague's uh, stewardship at the, at, as Foreign Secretary, um, is on um, women, peace and security, and on building capacity and uh, providing training to other armed forces. Um, we very much see that as a, as a larger part of our, our future role. Um, it links into other initiatives we've taken in government around uh, obviously protecting defence spending, but we are also protecting actually in law spending on international development because we see that as part of the, of the curve um, that we need to, uh, to make the world a safer place. Um, we're doing a tremendous amount of activity in there. Um, one of the, uh, the areas that I am uh, really keen on pushing is that when we're, as we're going to do more training of forces around the world, um, we are tagging into that training around um, uh, sexual violence in conflict uh, and uh, about women, peace and security. So um, I think that's something that we should be very proud of. I think um, I don't know enough about what other nations are doing uh, per se on that to grade us in comparison to that. I know that the US is doing a tremendous amount on that. But I think we, we are leading the charge on, on some things. And one thing that is very important to us and, and we know is important to, to you as well is that we are able to act uh, independently. Um, uh, our Prime Minister has, um, uh, you know, he's, he's stuck his neck out on a number of issues, Libya, being, being one of them uh, uh, in the, uh, under the um, coalition government. Um, uh, we always want to be able to do that, um, but we are very pleased to work shoulder to shoulder with you on, on a whole raft of issues. Yes. Hi, I'm Michaela. I'm here with Boston University DC programs. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how we can learn from some of the mistakes that we may have made in Iraq and Afghanistan, and how we can learn from those in our work to kind of help the local forces fight against ISIL. Mm -hmm. well, thank you. Um, I mean, we, we have a, a, a generation of um, leaders in our armed forces who have an enormous amount of combat experience. And we would be really stupid if we didn't listen to them. And uh, I think that we have done that, um, whether it has been through uh, formal inquiries. Um, I, I was involved in looking into um, uh, what happened in Afghanistan, particularly um, with our, our forces around um, 2006. And um, I think we have a, a very good understanding of uh, the things that went right and the things that didn't go uh, quite so well. I think we are demonstrating that we have learned those lessons now in how we are approaching the, the situation with, with uh, ISIL. We have to build capacity in, in local forces. Um, we have to allow them to, uh, to lead uh, that fight. Um, and I think we, we, are, we are demonstrating that. It, it is frustrating. It takes longer uh, 
um, but it is absolutely necessary. Um, I think as well the, uh, I mean the. Sometimes there is there are there are criticisms of those those local forces. Uh, I think they are uh, doing a tremendous job. They're incredibly brave. Um, their commanders really do have to lead uh, from the front. As a consequence, uh, they they suffer uh, more casualties uh, to that. Um, uh, to their military leadership. Um, it, is, uh, it is a tough fight, um, but we are there doing what we need to do to enable them uh, to, to win that. Um, I had the great privilege of, um, uh, when I was visiting Cyprus, talking to some of our armed forces who are acting as trainers and mentors to these local forces. It is, it is a great experience for our own people in being able to do that. Um, and it will have a, a lasting effect. Um, and what we need to ensure is that uh, as we're pushing ISIL back and, and as we defeat them, and we, we will defeat them, that there is not a, then a vacuum uh, for something else to emerge. Um, we have really got to deepen our understanding uh, of uh, the, the local situation, and we have got to uh, do everything we can to support, uh, wherever it is in the world, um, you know, a political settlement in these, uh, in these ungoverned spaces. Um, I think we have learned the lessons. Um, uh, but we should uh, we should always keep them in mind. I'm working my way to the to the back. So if I could go here to this gentleman. Hi, um, Gary Sargent. I run a small consulting firm, TS Light. I'm a retired Army Special Forces officer by trade. Just sort of, if you could comment for me on the British Special Operations Forces and sort of their capability with the declining personnel numbers from the bottom of the pyramid. And also, um, my second question would be, when's selection taking women for SAS? <laughs> um, well, my, my line to take on special forces is that I don't comment on special forces. You mean they uh, exist? <laughs> what? What madness? I can confirm they exist. Um, but uh, I mean, I think, I think that we, uh, we do ask a lot of uh, that capability. For us in the SDSR, it will be a huge focus in, in what we do. Um, uh, I am, uh, uh, well, we will have to wait and see. We will be driven by the, by the evidence uh, uh, of, our, of our review. Again, we're looking at, at infantry and, and armor, um, uh, but uh, who knows what the, what the future will bring. I'm sorry I'm not being able to give you any more detail on, uh, on SF, um, but, uh, but it's certainly, um, I think, one of, the, uh, one of the major issues that will uh, we'll be looking at in the um, in the defence review. So right there. Yes, I'm uh, Russell King, a uh, retired federal employee. Uh, Minister, I'm sure you know that in Budapest there's a problem with migrants at the train station, and Britain's been criticized for not taking enough of these migrants. But there are criminal smuggling rings that move migrants from one place to another. And I, I know also from, from Libya, that, that, that I think the migrants from there came from sub-Sahara Africa, and then they went thousands of miles across many borders through, through deserts. There are sophisticated sm um, smuggling rings. What is the military role? I, I, know, I know we're talking about human shielding. I know, I know you don't want to kill in, 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 innocent migrants. But what is the role of the military along the smuggling routes of illegal aliens? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think um, the first thing I need to say is about the role that the UK has played in, in uh, 
trying to address the humanitarian crisis uh, that uh, has been caused by what's happening in Syria and, uh, uh, and uh, um, North Africa. Um, the, the UK has made huge contribution to um, uh, humanitarian uh, relief. I think we are the second uh, largest contributor to that. The amount that we have given um, as a government uh, in uh, aid relief to, um, to Syria, let alone what the British public themselves have paid, I think is larger than Russia's entire aid budget. It's, um, it's a huge amount. And we have made a conscious decision to uh, address the humanitarian crisis there, taking some people, um, but those people who are most vulnerable, who might um, have a disability or an illness, um, taking them to the, to the UK. Um, but uh, the, the notion that if we just increase the, the number of people we're actually taking into the UK, we're going to have an impact uh, on these um, desperate situ situations is, um, is fantasy. Um, we, we you know, need to help enormous numbers of people and actually um, you know, assisting countries like Jordan, um, putting money uh, in at the, at the local level is the best way we can do that as well as taking some, those, those most vulnerable and those most at need. Um, we, we have as well got to be mindful that we must try and remove every incentive um, to these, these smuggling gangs. Um, we uh, are, have been taking a, a real lead in uh, combating that uh, criminal activity uh, in the Mediterranean. Um, and we have, uh, it is, uh, it's a huge challenge to Europe, who, which each country is governed by its own uh, rules about what they can do and what action they can uh, take, for example, to, um, uh, to uh, sink a vessel, uh, for example, um, to, to have actually a concerted and joined up effort in, in terms of tackling that, those um, organized crime gangs. And, um, and having a consistent strategy in, in doing that. Um, uh, we believe that uh, we've got to, to shut down those, those incentives. Um, and we also believe that actually some of those countries in uh, North Africa who, whose economy is doing well, um, that is the best place for people to, uh, to be sent and to be uh, looked after. Um, but it is a very immediate uh, challenge for Europe. And uh, as well as um, the other sort of strategic issues that we have to uh, consider, and an you know, emerging aggressive Russia, for example, this is front and center, you know, requiring action now. Um, we are doing that. We have deployed naval assets. Um, uh, HMS Bulwark uh, initially um, was hugely active, saving uh, thousands and thousands of lives. Um, so we are, we are very much a player in that. But unless we really tackle uh, the, the underlying problems as to why so many people are being displaced, which we are doing, making a huge contribution to those, those operations and tackling ISIL, and unless we really tackle the, the smuggling gangs, that's always been our line, um, we, we are not going to solve this. It's not just about taking, uh, taking refugees. Um, Andrew Zebel, I'm an active duty captain in the uh, U.S. Army. Uh, perhaps fittingly, I saw today that a, uh, for the first time a brigadier general in our army was selected to be a deputy commander in uh, the U.K. 3rd Division. Uh, what value do you see in, in a partnership like that, and do you think that will continue uh, and work both ways across the Atlantic? Thank you. Yeah. 
I, I think it will. I mean, the, the relationship um, our, our armed forces have is uh, there is no uh, comparison. Um, our, um, our officers uh, go on each other's courses. Um, I've had the huge privilege in the short time I've been in office to just see how closely, and in particular in certain trades, in intelligence, in cyber, how closely we, we work uh, together. Um, and we're, we're very used to this. So I think we will continue to see um, that greater integration, uh, as I mentioned in my speech, that interoperability. Um, and uh, there is um, there's great affection between our armed forces as well. Um, people have worked with each other. They, they know each other. Uh, they trust each other. And, um, uh, and that is why we need to continue to invest in our people as well as, as kit. Uh, that's what makes the relationship so special. So I think we will see more of that. But uh, just a quick relationship question. There, oh, friends, do you have something? Well, I was going to say a quick relationship question. I mean, there have been some in the Pentagon who have voiced some concern about the shrinkage of the UK armed forces. Um, uh, in, you know, what, you know, I mean, there were some people who were saying that the you know, special relationship is with France and, you know, that that's changing because the French have become, become somewhat more active, which I know that irritated some people in London, and I don't think it was intended that way. But, you know, how do you respond to that question and, and that challenge in, in the U.S. when there are some observers who, who have shared these experiences over time, over decades in, in careers that have crossed paths, but ultimately also, you know, tend to look at it and say, boy, you know, you guys really are getting very small ultimately, in, in some respects, that then also doesn't, you know, there are British friends of mine in uniform who are mm. like, you know, our vision is bigger than we are, and as long as we maintain the big vision, we're going to be okay, but if we don't keep that big vision and sense of ourselves, that's when we'll, we'll, we'll get in trouble. How do you, how do you address yeah. that to Americans? I, mean, I, would, I would say yes. a number of, of tough things. Um, I mean, at a time when um, our other government departments have been asked by our chancellor to find 40% cuts in their budgets. Um, we have protected our defense budget. So it's not just the NATO commitment. We are growing the defense budget year on year, real terms in increases, um, and uh, against a backdrop of pretty, you know, uh, pretty desperate situation uh, and, and requiring our other government departments to do more heavy lifting. So um, increasing the defense budget, I think, should send a very clear signal to the US from the UK that we are, you know, we are serious about this. I think as well, we, we need to have some uh, discussions around how the US can help itself by, by helping us. So I mentioned before in, in answer to um, this lady's question about our industrial base. Um, we buy things from the US. Uh, we would love the US to buy more things from us and to help us uh, reduce our own costs. Um, things that we are genuinely innovative at um, uh, and that would benefit uh, and be better than uh, A better two-way street is what you're basically exactly. talking Exactly. So I think we, uh, we have a good enough relationship to, uh, to have those conversations and, and not fall out. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, I think we need some, uh, some challenge there as well. Um, and we are, uh, as I say, we, we um, invest in particular kit uh, that is relevant to you. Our Type 45s make our Royal Navy relevant to the U.S. Uh, we could have lots of other platforms, uh, many more of them, but we have chosen to, to buy billion-pound warships because um, 
uh, it makes us relevant to the to the U.S. With, with very impressive capabilities. Yes, Fran. Fran Burwell, the Atlantic Council. Um, two questions. Uh, as you head into this review, what are the types of scenarios that you are looking at? You've mentioned maritime. Uh, you have mentioned still wanting, to, do you still see yourself as having a global role? It seems to me that many European countries, including the UK, are confronted with so many regional emergencies. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's hard enough to respond to those. Uh, at the Wales Summit, we saw an increasing emphasis on almost a return to defense of the East, and we're likely to see even more of that in the lead up to the Warsaw Summit, at least in, in what the host country is going to be asking for. How do you see, what types of different scenarios do you think that you will base, have to base this review on or look at as, reflect on as you look at the review, and, and how global are they? And then to return to the gentleman's question about uh, women and the SAS, uh, you can't talk about that too specifically, but can you say whether the recent success of our women in uh, getting through the training has changed or affected the debate at all in the UK? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, well, to the, to the first point, um, there are several things I would say. I mean, first of all, as I said before, we are in the, the very early phases of our defense review, but our planning assumptions reflect the issues that you, you raise. So um, it's about those local uh, crises. It's about um, the contribution that defense makes to uh, international humanitarian crisis and natural disasters. And it's about um, uh, the UK's own resilience. Those things, although we, we've always done a lot of that kind of stuff, um, had not really been um, front and center in the, the defense planning assumptions in the last um, SDSR. So um, the assumptions we're working on now f reflect uh, reality. I think the, um, the, the challenges are not so much um, what are the scenarios that we are focused on or that we can uh, speculate on, uh, which regions of the world, um, the sorts of threats that we can see emerging, um, and, and can we predict what's going to happen? We know from our previous defense reviews that you can't predict uh, what's going to happen, that's, that's for sure. But I think the main challenge in the review going forward is trying to um, be prepared and uh, enable the kind of capabilities for situations which we can't imagine now. The, the direction that warfare is going in is, is changing. Um, we are going to have to do a, a, a develop uh, capabilities that um, currently we, we don't have uh, uh, an idea about. Um, so the obvious one is on, 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 in cyber. Um, we have to enable those working in that field to have uh, the flexibility in how our budgets are planned to uh, create and adapt um, capability to combat very fast-moving and changing threats. Um, and that is one of the great strengths about uh, our countries and how closely we work in those fields, that we have people literally sat next to each other working on those problems. We don't have to have a summit every six months to uh, look at that, because actually that's too late. So. Um, 
that's a great strength that the relationship has, and that, I think, is the challenge in, in the kinds of scenarios that we are going to have to be combating in the, in the near future. Um, I think that, um, the, the, to, to your second point, um, the short answer is yes, absolutely. Um, the, the fact that uh, two women have, have got through that course doesn't necessarily dramatically enrich the data that we have that's driving um, uh, our, our research and our, you know, uh, strengthening our evidence base. What it does do, and I think this is really important, is uh, that, that those women are role models, that uh, women who might aspire to go into uh, the service or who are in our services at the moment um, uh, can really start to think about what they want to do uh, with their career um, and think about what roles might be open to them. Um, and once certain fields are open to them, uh, then they might raise their aspirations about the kind of uh, career they, they aspire to, command roles, and all sorts of possibilities open up for them. So I think those things are important. It's absolutely right that we, uh, that we celebrate that and we acknowledge that. Um, and one thing that I'm very keen that uh, I lever for, for the UK is the very large number of uh, women role models that the, that the US military uh, has. Um, it's great to see a female admiral in our, in our main building because it really does uh, help our own women um, raise their, their expectations uh, and aspirations. Uh, and as long as they carry on doing that, uh, we will run to keep up. Yes, ma'am, the lady right there in the blue who's had her hand up since the beginning and been very patient with me. Thank you. <laughs> Leandra Bernstein, Sputnik International News. Uh, question on Russia. There was a think tank proposal uh, released yesterday, British think tank, uh, suggesting that UK troops should be stationed in Eastern Europe and specifically, well, in the Baltic countries. So I'd like to get your thoughts, what you think about that proposal, and then also uh, the British stance toward Russia. Mm -hmm. Well, this, although um, this uh, doesn't necessarily get um, the media attention that some of the other threats that we are uh, focused on and considering in the defense review, counterterrorism uh, being, I suppose, the most, um, most focused on, um, we are extremely focused on what Russia is, is doing. Uh, there is a huge amount of um, uh, concern uh, about um, an increasingly uh, aggressive Russia and uh, that she is changing uh, her behavior. Um, so I, I, I mean, I've, I've heard it mentioned that people think that we're perhaps less focused on that than on some of the other issues, but I can assure you that's, uh, that's not the case. Um, I'm not able to talk about uh, those aspects of the defense review because we are not at that stage in the defense review, but um, we very much, uh, and we're demonstrating it in our actions, um, will honor all of our obligations uh, in, in NATO. Uh, and uh, we, we have been very clear on that. Yes, sir, right, right next to him. 
Hi, I'm Michael Goff. I head up an energy research uh, nonprofit called Urban Cruise Ship. Uh, my question for you is where is the UK and the US on cybersecurity and where do we need to be? I think this is one of the most challenging areas that we, we face, in part because of the, the pace uh, that things move at, um, and the, the challenges are, are considerable. I think we're in a very good place, um, and I think we are in a good place because uh, we are absolutely integrated in, in what we're doing. Um, we have some great people uh, and uh, as I said in a um, previous answer, uh, we, are, um, we are working very closely. Uh, we, we have people, you know, literally their desks are next door to each other. Um, and so what we need to do is enable those, you know, absolutely the right people to um, be able to have the flexibility in what they're doing to develop uh, defensive or off offensive cyber. Um, that is one of the challenges to uh, you know us as politicians is to is to ensure that you know um, we're not wedded to uh, old-fashioned planning cycles that we we can enable them to be as uh, as nimble um, as we need them to be. I think the other key issue that will help us is uh, we've come sort of full circle is back to some of the reforms that we're doing about what it is to have a, a career. Um, whether it's in the armed forces or whether it's as a civilian that is supporting uh, defense. Um, we need to attract uh, people that perhaps haven't traditionally uh, thought this is a, is a career for them. Um, and there are some great initiatives uh, that we're doing and I know that you are doing as well that, that enable that to happen. But we have really good people. Um, they are very focused on that. Um, I have been very encouraged uh, in the, the short time I've been in office uh, about, about meeting that challenge. Um, I think it is a, is a top priority. Um, certainly when I was um, uh, uh, on the Defence Committee, I think it was the only report we, we ever sent directly to the, to the Prime Minister at the time. Um, but this is, uh, there is huge emphasis on this and uh, I'm very glad it's in my portfolio. Any additional questions? Yes. Michael McInerney, Law360. I was just wondering if you could talk, going off of cybersecurity, about uh, not just within the armed forces, but also across government and also cross sector uh, steps that need to be taken to ensure national security. In, in the cyber issue, oh God, how long have you got? <laughs> um, we can stay all evening, actually. I mean, in. Uh, um, Cyber uh, defense play a part in that, um, but it is actually owned cross-government um, by the cabinet office. Uh, and, a, and a huge amount of work is, is done by them in, in driving this agenda. Um, it is, uh, I think that we have gone through uh, a massive change over the last few years in, in how this is seen as a priority in other government departments. Um, without sort of going into the, the nitty-gritty detail of the, the sorts of uh, capabilities we're developing, um, uh, I, I don't think there is much more that I can say other than we need to ensure that the resource is, is, is put behind this. 
um, and uh, that we have the right people uh, working uh, and, and happy to work in, uh, uh, for, for their country. Um, I think that uh, there are all sorts of other aspects which are, uh, I suppose, you know, not on, uh, on the public's radar about um, space weather and uh, bizarre uh, natural events, um, which, uh, which we need to be focused on ensuring our, our resilience. Um, but this is a top priority for us. Um, and uh, I can assure you that it's not just defense that are, are spending the, the time they need to on it. Let me ask you uh, kind of a, a sort of a broader question. I mean, you talked about sort of what the international community has to do, for example, with you know, the migrant issue is tied to Syria. That, to an extent, is tied to what's happening with ISIS. But on many of these things, it seems that the international community doesn't necessarily, you know, as you said, it's going to take a long time to solve that. Do we need, and I know that there are some people at the Atlantic Council who've been spending a lot of time thinking about that, you know, whether, you know, and Barry Pavel has talked about, you know, whether it's fundamentally unstable so that stability isn't something that we're actually seeking. Um, you know, do, do, are we in an era where there are going to be these persistent, long-spanning crises where there will be large displacements of people, for example, a migrant crisis, and that that's just going to be the state of play for extended periods of time because basically nobody knows really what to do about them aside from, you know, try to help the indigenous folks to fight these battles, but the indigenous folks sometimes are not or as motivated as we feel they ought to be in how they engage the, these problems? I, I would be more optimistic uh, than that. I mean, several things. Whilst we are um, uh, dealing with, with um, the fight against ISIL and these, these very immediate and high-profile operations, we are also heading off trouble elsewhere. Um, so you know, a large part of what we're doing is about uh, training missions, it's about ensuring that ISIL and other organizations don't get a foothold in, in other nations, it's about um, not just what our military can do, it's about uh, our aid budget, it's about uh, enabling and supporting um, fledgling uh, economies. Um, we need to, we know that the, the, the best return on our budgets are getting in early and preventing stuff from happening. Once we, we're at the intervention stage in terms of um, our military, that is, is poor value for, for what, what money we've got. So as well as doing these things, um, uh, and the, the UK, you know, we, are, uh, we are small compared to, uh, to other nations, but we, uh, we are involved in, in a huge number of, of operations to, uh, to do that. Um, and, so that's, that's the first thing. The, the second thing is, I think we are in this for the, for the long haul. Um, it is in our national interest um, to ensure that we, we have peace in these, these parts of the world. Just taking the, the, uh, uh, the Middle East, um, one of the things that we have done in the, in the, you know, the, the uh, first few weeks of, of this government is produce our, our Gulf strategy. 
the first visit that I did, uh, I don't know how many weeks into my role, was to go to Bahrain and open up um, our new MCC base there mm -hmm. and to uh, progress us having a First time a you were back east of Suez in a while? <laughs> yeah, well, I was, I was last in that, uh, in that, that neck of the woods on a, on a warship, so... Um, uh, but, uh, you know, that um, that is the direction of travel for us. Right. Um, we, we always have sort of joked about um, Bahrain that we have, you know, we've been there for decades, but on a kind of annual re review. Right. Um, now we're really putting down roots. Um, uh, we're taking Illustrious's anchor chains out there to each side of the, the, the gate. And um, we have a permanent base there. And we are working very hard, um, even though it is very difficult for ministers to get to travel on a, a 12 majority, um, to, uh, to really build those relationships in that, in that part of the world. So um, this is a cross-government uh, effort. There's huge focus um, and resolve. And I think that is the only way we are. we are going to crack that. But at the same time, we can't take our eye off other parts of the world where um, other trouble might be might be brewing. Speaking of trouble brewing, in, in the UK, like many European uh, nations, there is a challenge from homegrown terrorism and the number of people who are flowing from Britain. Uh, you know, Norway has had a challenge with it. I mean, a whole bunch of countries that you one would not automatically assume would have this. You know, France has had major, major challenges. On that front, on the domestic front, what are some of the things that, you know, the UK is doing in looking and addressing um, at this uh, challenge because it's, that is, you know, it's, it's staggering the numbers of sort of self-radicalized people who are becoming involved in this mm -hmm. campaign, um, if you will. We, we are doing a tremendous amount. Um, before I became a minister in defense, I was in the Department of Local Government. Um, there are huge programs and initiatives to, uh, to really ensure that um, this, this doesn't happen. Um, I think, I mean, there are, there are many, uh, many programs that, that run, but one of the things I think that, uh, coming back to my speech, that we can do is to really um, build the connection um, between uh, certain communities that are vulnerable uh, and have people within them that are vulnerable to radicalization and um, their nation's armed forces. Um, one, one question that uh, has been posed to me um, is that why is it that someone from those communities will go and risk their life fighting for um, Pakistan or, or another nation uh, and feels the need to go and protect that nation um, but not wish to do the same for, for the UK? And it is very clear to me that although I have recruitment targets for um, uh, ethnic minority communities, before I can achieve those and before I ought to start achieving them, I have to uh, build that connection between those communities and our armed forces. Our armed forces are there to protect them, to serve them, uh, and they should feel ownership of them. And that is my, my immediate priority. Any other questions from the audience? We have two minutes. Um, in Harlan. I, do have, I, I was going to hit her with a marine engineering question, but, but you can... No, you th can this, this, this is a larger one. Uh, as you know, there's a huge controversy in this country in terms of opposition to the Iranian nuclear agreement. Yet in Britain, France, Germany, China, and Russia, there seems to be solidarity, and it's a good agreement. 
What do you know that we don't? <laughs> I, I don't think there is much that I can uh, say that hasn't already been said on this issue. Um, I mean, in, in both our countries, you know, it's, it's not a universally held view in the UK. Uh, there, are, um, there are people who, uh, you know, have concerns about it or, um, uh, or, or think that it's too high risk um, or that we don't have the, the right controls in place. Um, fundamentally, uh, this, is our, this is our best shot at uh, what I hope is a, is a shared objective and a shared goal. Um, and uh, we do have those, um, those mechanisms in place. It is not the case that, you know, after 15 years, suddenly everything is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a free-for-all. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the question that I think I would always put uh, to uh, those that are, are skeptical about this is, is what is the alternative? So I think this is our best chance. Um, uh, that is the, the view of the, the international community. I've mentioned the work we're doing on the Gulf strategy. We've, we've done a huge amount of work as well to, to reassure uh, and, uh, and protect Israel's interests. Um, but, uh, you know, this is, this is going ahead. And uh, I think even those who are not of that school of thought would recognize that this has a chance. On behalf of everybody at the Atlantic Council and on my behalf, Madam Minister, thank you so much for joining thank us and you. spending so much time with us. And I think I speak for everybody here to say you're welcome back anytime. Thank you very, thank you very much. much. Thank for you for having us. me. Thanks for coming.